Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Poetry Spoken Here. I am producer and technical director, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And very quickly, before we get into today's episode, this is a reminder that Poetry Spoken Here is produced by Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated, a small digital production company making podcasts about poetry, literature, and cultural history. Just recently, Cardboard Box Productions launched a newsletter, Unboxed, that has behind-the-scenes information about all the different podcasts they produce, including Poetry Spoken Here, so that's a great place to find out more about the different guests and books and topics that are covered on Poetry Spoken Here, uh, as well as things that are covered on all the other podcasts. And you can subscribe to Unboxed by going to CardboardBoxProductionsInc.com. On with the show. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is a most interesting fellow named Pierre Joris. He is a poet, editor, and translator. Born in France, raised in Luxembourg, and has lived in many places throughout the U.S., Europe, and North Africa. As an editor, he's been involved with numerous anthologies, two of which still blow my mind, though they've been around for 20 years, the poems for the millennium. And if you have not seen that, you want to see this survey of avant-garde poetry from the 20th century. It's It, it covers so much material. And when I first saw it, it had so much in it I didn't know about even. And so if you're a poet, you want to know the context in which you're working, the community that you're a part of, that you are joining, the background of it. You will want to look at poems for the millennium. And these volumes are still available, hard or in paperback, new or used. Uh, and I'm sure if your library is paying attention to poetry, they could be in your library and get them. As a translator, I, he's translated so many poets, I'll just mention a couple of my favorites, Rilke and Tristan Zara. His new book, Microliths, is a translation of the poem of the prose of Paul Ceylon. And this is the culmination of, according to the book, a 52-year involvement with Ceylon's work. And the publisher is Contramundum Press. And I'm just going to tell you a little bit about them because they deserve a call out. Here's what they say about themselves. Dedicated to the value and the indispensable importance of the individual voice to works that test the boundaries of thought and experience. Our preferences for works that have not yet been translated into English are out of print or are poorly translated. And for writers whose thinking and aesthetics are in opposition to timely or mainstream currents of thought, value systems, or moralities. We also reprint obscure and out of print works we consider significant but which have been forgotten, neglected, or overshadowed. So those are the wonderful, noble goals of Contramundum Press. So I encourage you to look into them, uh, and you'll find microliths there on their website, of course, and the other things they've been publishing for about the last decade. So, Pierre, let's let you talk and let me stop talking. <laughs> how did... Um, how, 52 years is a long time to be dealing with one writer. So uh, 
Can you say something about your attraction to him, the fascination? Yes, it's actually 53 now. I wrote that last year when I was preparing this statement in high school, in German class in Luxembourg. The teacher brought in a peripatetic reader who read us contemporary German poetry. And, you know, I wasn't really paying much attention until all of a sudden the man read Celan's Todesfuge. And it totally blew me away. Totally blew me away. Turned me around. It opened something. It told me that there was a use of language that was not what we're doing right now, talking. There was not, quote, literature, what we were doing in class, but there was something that touched places that otherwise language never goes to. I guess that's poetry. And so that turned me to poetry. And, you know, I began thinking about it, writing. I'd always wanted to be a writer, but I wanted to write, you know, adventure stories at that time, you know. And as I came more and more towards poetry, uh, Celan, as the European of that moment, became very much that incredible figure that remained with me. I had to choose a, a language to write in. I didn't want to write in German. It was my second, third language. I, didn't, I couldn't write in the Mamalashan because I was never taught to write in Luxembourgish. French, I didn't think anything interesting was happening in French literature. But in a shop in town when I was 15, I bought Howl by mistake uh, and Boris's Naked Lunch, right? And um, about a year later, I came across Bob Kaufman's Solitude's book. And so that blew me away and opened up to American poetry. So I said, well, if I have to write in a foreign language, why not write in English? I went to Paris to study family oblige medicine, but dropped out after one year, moved into Shakespeare and Company because my father cut me off, right? Uh, in Shakespeare and Company, I pulled Ezra Pound off the shelf. Uh, Jimmy Baldwin walked in and gave a reading. Wham! It was totally amazing. And I ran across somebody who told me, if you go to America to study, as you should do, wanting to write in American English, more, much more interesting than British English, go to Bard College. And he helped me apply. I got there. And with me, I had the latest Ceylon book, Atemwende, which the next year, as my dissertation at Bard, I translated as Breath Turn. So I kind of Celan called the translator the Fergendienst, i.e. the ferryman's labor is translation. So I, I, I saw myself always as this ferryman who took Celan with him across the Atlantic and then opened him up here. And it was very useful for me to do this job because I had to learn English much better than I had my basic English because I wanted to write in it. And so to translate, you have to know the original language and the target language. And so it was a wonderful occasion, especially Lit Ceylon, which is a poetry that's focused on the individual word, on the origins, on the context, on, you know, uh, uh, on the etymologies of words. So when I understood it in German, I would translate it into English and I'd have to check every word to see what the actual origins were, if etymologically I could get something close to. So it was incredible apprenticeship. And I kept doing it. Uh, you know, I finished that book. Then I moved to England. I started working on a second one. I couldn't get them published because all the rights were with Michael Hamburger and Karkanet Press in London. 
and they, you know, the, the, the German publisher wanted to keep it that way, blah, blah, you know, the, the classical adventures. Uh, I moved, I got a teaching job in North Africa at the edge of the Sahara, and I would be sitting in Oasis there in the Hotel Transatlantique, translate the next volume of Selam, which is totally surreal in, 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 in a strange way, you know, because he, he was the thing. And, you know, and I do other things, and I publish magazines, and I publish my first books of poetry. Uh, and, but I would always come back to Tzilam, you know. I eventually, I never met him, which I think was good. Uh, I went and met his wife, and I'm now very friendly with his son, you know. And eventually, in the 90s, um, an L.A. publisher, Sun and Moon Press, brought out the first uh three volumes in a sequence and then uh, six years ago i offered uh faris and giroud to collected later poetry and they said yes we'll do it so and i said i'm done i'm done this is it <laughs> then jonathan galassi said to me why don't you do the early ones i said oh no more still <laughs> But then I would have translated the whole oeuvre of Ceylon, you know, because I did a couple other book of essays and proses, as we see. Voila. In, in, a, in a way, it was, I want to say it was like he was a mentor, because what, what he called for in your translating of him led you to new things, the way a good mentor would lead you on. He was a strong mentor at a number of levels, on the level of poetics, certainly, because he changed his poetics very much. And as I studied why he did that, I realized that one has to be very careful in one's use of language, right? One, you can't just lyrically sound off, uh, as he did early on, very beautifully. But those poems were misused. The Totus Fugger was always taught, even in Germany, as a beautiful, gorgeous, surreal poem, right? But they were talking about the structure and the music, but not about the content. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, so I learned vast amounts from Ceylon. Also, I learned a lot about politics because Ceylon was always called a paranoid uh, for, you know, saying that the Nazis were still very active in Germany, you know, but he was quite right in terms of, you know, what, what was going on. And I even, you know, thought of that and, um, you know, kind of speak of it today because the kind of politics that we are in here in this country now uh, are very similar, i.e. the systemic ethnocide and racism that underlies this country yeah. is hidden, just as the Nazis were white, quite hidden by the Marshall Plan in Germany, right? And Ceylon told me, always look under the you know, it looks like a pretty meadow, but dig it up and you'll find the corpses. You know, so that's yeah. the central lesson of Ceylon. He was an old lover of anarchy. Of anarchy. He was a reader of Kropotkin. Uh, he, you know, he that was his his uh, origins of political thinking. You know, Marxist, but in the Kropotkin, in the mutual aid yeah. uh, type type of mode. Yeah, well, I want to mix our talking with a little of, of the actual. So uh, if you'd like to, uh, you said you picked out some things to read. So if you'd like to just read us an excerpt or something and uh, yeah, go for it. Here's a poem of Tzilan's 
from relatively early on, from the, the, the third book, Sprechgitter, which is late 50s still, is called Tenebrae. We are near, Lord, near and graspable. Grasped already, Lord, clawed into each other as if each of our bodies was your body, Lord. Pray, Lord, pray to us. We are near. Wind bent. We went there. We went there to bend down over crater and mar. To the trough we went, Lord. It was blood. It was what you spilled, Lord. It shone. It cast your image into our eyes, Lord. Eyes and mouth gape, so open and empty, Lord. We have drunk, Lord. The blood and the image was in the blood, Lord. Pray, Lord, we are near. It's a beautiful reversal of, you know, of, of a sort of, of a Jewish, of, of any kind of theology. It's negative theology, you know. Yeah, I was looking at the back cover of another book uh, where you have conversations with, with Adonis. And it says, uh, religion is an answer. Poetry is a question. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty interesting statement. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, he does that. And, you know, Ceylon uh, didn't write vast amounts of um, prose texts. Hmm. He wrote his poetry. So a lot of the poems are very programmatic, and you can get the poetics out of some of the poems. Uh, but uh, I love that 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 book, uh, Microlith, that we you talked about mm -hmm. from the publisher, a wonderful publisher. Microlith is the fourth book I do with him. So uh, uh, let me read you a couple of the fragments. This this is somebody has gathered. I mean Barbara Wiedemann and uh, somebody else gathered mm -hmm. every little fragment of Ceylon's notes on the back of envelopes, everything that's in the archives. So we we have this amazing. Fragments, and as the poet Robert Kelly once said, nothing truer than fragment. You know, that's, uh, and I, I, I've always loved that statement. And so, so aesthetics thus demands concealment and rewards it. Ethics demands disclosure and punishes concealment. I think that's a beautiful statement for a poet. Uh, true poetry is anti-biographical. The poet's homeland is his poem and changes from one poem to the next. The distances are the old eternal ones, infinite like the cosmos in which each poem attempts to assert itself as a minuscule star. Infinite also like the distance between one's I and one's you. Hmm. Oh, I, those statements, I, I you know. It belongs to the poem's essence that it will release the author, the confidant, from its confidence. If it were different, no poet would write more than one poem. <laughs> yeah. The conjunction of the words in the poem, not only a conjunction, also a confrontation. Also, also a towards each other and then away from each other. Encounter, descent, and leave-taking, all in one. And uh, 
I had one other one here I wanted to read. There exists a darkness of the poem, I think, on the near and far sides of all esotericism and hermeticism, on the near and far side of secret and revelation knowledge. Writing as a form of prayer, we read, deeply moved, in Kafka. This, too, however, does not mean that praying comes first. Writing does. You cannot do it with hands folded. So again, there we, we started with the negative theology in the right. poem, you know, uh, uh, here, here, here is that. What would you, here's something I've, I've asked other translators. Is there any uh, kind of thing in translating that's particularly difficult? I don't know if you can generalize or not. If it's well, it depends on the author you do, mm. uh, the language from which you translate. So it is very, you know, it is always Specific. very particular in that sense. In Ceylon, uh, things are difficult because Ceylon makes up a lot of words. Hmm. Uh, German is easy to combine words, you know, very, very close. Right. And you can do that in English. For example, in French, it looks horrible. Uh, you can't do it. So you always have clauses where the German or the English can have like, you know, a compact little construction. Mm -hmm. But in Ceylon, you also have you have to look for an accuracy. Uh, if we had time, I could tell the long story, but there's a poem about Heidegger where he speaks of Waldwasen, which most people translate as uh, forest glades. You know those nice things where the lammies and the shepherds and the poets play around. <laughs> but he does not write Waldwiesen, i.e. he writes Waldwasen with an A. So Vase, yeah, it's something like a meadow, but you look at it, and the vase is, in fact, a meadow with the roots underneath it, oh. the peat also. So what Hiran is talking about is, as always, not just the surface, but the underbelly, too. And when you dig in, you also find out that the vasenmeister, the master of those weird meadows, is the guy who buries the dead cattle in the villages. We are absolutely go. in what is buried. Then if you go to the etymology of that word, Vasen, you get to um, North German dialectical formation where the word uh, refers to the, the bundle of uh, um, wood for burning that people pick up and bring out of the forest, right? Now, yeah. that word, Vasen there, comes from the French, Fesso. Faisal is the word for the Latin root of fasces, i.e. the origin of the rhetor's bundle with the axe sticking out of fascism. So the meadow in Ceylon's Heidegger poem is not the meadow where he, he and the philosopher played with the lamies, right? It's fascism that he Whoa. is accusing Heidegger of. So how to translate that? I never found the absolute word for it, you know. So I used the word sword, S-W-A-R-D, forest sword, you know, which has a darkness to it. And at the same time, you have the A that rhymes with the opening two flowers in the first line, Annika, and Eyebright, 
so you know that that's all this there's a long essay of mine on that poem on uh, the buffalo poetry website or on uh, on my site in uh, at the um, uh, poetry what is that called uh, you pen at the pen okay. oh yeah anyway but you see those are the complexities of translation with Ceylon they are worse than with with anybody I translated you know you have different diff different trans difficulties I translated Jack Kerouac's Mexico City Blues into French in 72 you know and that was completely other because you couldn't translate the jazz rhythm of Kerouac into French sentences. You had to completely deconstruct, ruin classical French, you know, prettiness of, of, of melodic sentences to get to any bebop rhythm in the language, yeah. you know. So every translation in that sense has its own. But I'm not worried about that. I have somewhere I've written it often. I say, all writing is translation. You know, language is translation of something other, you know, electric impulses, metabolic things, you know, th that's it. So there is no original text anywhere. You're always in translation, in moving, you know. And that notion of trans in both spellings, I like very much. An early book of mine was called Trans CE Formations. And uh, the trance as the travel, as the moving across the nomadic thing is, you know, has always yeah. also been core to me. So, voila, writing and <laughs> translating, mem combat, same battle. I love it. Going back, going back the way you just did through the word connections <laughs> and in more than, you know, in, in across languages, that is just so interesting. It's why browsing the OED is fun <laughs> and you find those etymological things that you didn't know were there behind a word that really are just fascinating and informative and sometimes make yeah. you want to use one word over another. The best one, I always got my students to buy the American heritage, but not the paperback, the, the, the you know, the hardcover, because mm -hmm. in the back of that, you have an abbreviated form of Julius Pocorni's Indo-European etymological dictionary, which is the best that we have, where you really find the, 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 the core roots, you know. And my, my teaching in terms of writing has always been know what, what the word that you are using means, i.e. where does it come from? What are its roots? Here we are, again, the vasen of the poem, right? Rather than ah, yes. the surface meadow. <laughs> I like vasen. I'm going to keep that in mind. <laughs> no, wait, you said it was the American heritage? I'm going to repeat yeah. that for people. Yeah. The big okay. American heritage has a good etymological dictionary at Great. the end. Well, that's good to know. Somebody will probably go out and buy one. I hope that'll do them some good. Okay, well, would you... Uh, like to read some more of uh, Ceylon, or would you like, how about some of your, a poem or two of yours? Yeah, I can read a few of mine here. That's it's cool. funny because I had a couple poems out that I, uh, uh, somebody asked me for a little essay on Ceylon, half page one, and I, after 54 years, there's no way I can say in half a page anything. So I took a couple poems that are dedicated to Ceylon and uh, picked one of those. So they're on my desk right now here. Perfect. A small one uh, written in relation to a poem of Ceylon's called Eine Silbe Schmerz. An answer? A hand, sir. And a hand swerve. 
That's it. Little play on words. Vyatselan <laughs> again. To write over the you, the man, the human hurdles. Earlier today, I saw an old atlas floating down the Verrazano Narrows, which had nothing or something to do with my surprise later today, seeing a footnote that defined Ceylon as, quote, translator and poet Paul Ceylon. That's Claudia Ranking. Don't let me be lonely, page 143. And she goes on, committed suicide in 1970, floating down the Seine for so many years, my atlas. And the last one of those, to PC. Paul, if I may, I brought you here to another black soil earth, cousin to, I hope, the black soil of Chernovitz, the meridians of, because in us humans never travel in straight lines. They stutter, wander off to straight and narrow, bending saws breaking into tomorrow's blood-rich marrow. You were, you were so involved with your translations. Uh, is, is there some, is in your own poetry, is there a project you're working on now or do you just take them as they come and after a while, you know, see what you have and what fits together? Well, there was a book called um, A Feather of Many Birds that Gaza's poems from 15 to 20. I only did one small book in those five years, you know, um, uh, so it's the first bigger collection since Barzakh that came out in 15. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, the, the poems get written uh, kind of continuously, but I n- didn't have time. The last couple of years, I had to finish all this Ceylon, so they were kind of given over. Um, but uh, there is another book that I'm doing, co-editing with uh, Ariel Reznikov, a young, excellent poet, and that's a... a called a Diwan of Exiles, which is a Joris reader. That is, mm-hmm. my idea is what I have always done is write poetry, write essays, and translate. And so I want to do a combination of those three, weave a collage, weaving them in and out. You know, Robert Duncan called his books grand collages, you know. <laughs> uh, so that idea of putting all the, all the work into an uh, you know a three-dimensional mm. book yeah. in that sense so that's something i'm 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 yeah, working yeah, on i know there's a there's a book of gary snyder's that includes you know the essays and the poems and right together right, right. and it's it's yeah. really an enjoyable thing to have yeah no in no in addition to having much. the books of poems the the but most just, interesting one in that sense that i know is my old colleague jerome rothenberg you know with whom i did the anthologies you mentioned has a gorgeous book, Eye of Witness, which is his reader, which was done by Black Widow Press. And that's kind of another wonderful example of, you know, combining those, those, all the elements of of, of what you do, you know, that's, uh, but, you know, here, if you want, here are a couple recent poems put together as the ecological question solved as a two-gun attack on a three-headed problem. One, as below, 
haiku for the end of the world, Gaia world, sapiens, not so sapiens, boom, kaboom. Two, so above, trigonometry of the Trinity, and the Lord having rested from his labors, sat up, looked around, and seeing how his creatures had fucked up his creation, raised his hand and put a bullet to his head. Thus, the third eye came to be, the first and only one. It oozes, ur ooze, out of which may or may not, somewhere, sometime, somehow, merdouze, the three again, come newt life. That's that's that one. Does that's really interesting. That one is really serious, but a little kind of humor in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great when you can pull uh, that off, you know. <laughs> uh, once there comes, you know, you you can't be uh, pious about it. You mm -hmm. can't, you know, simply exhort people, you know. Uh, you have to kind of break open the the crazy uh, the crazy way in which you know people have closed in, or you know, in in a number of insane yeah. beliefs that are actually conspiracy uh, theories. Yeah. I'm writing an essay right now called "Faith in No Faith." Right, that contradiction. You know, you got to have faith, but you know, faith is the enemy. So you know, you can only have faith in what is not faith. Whoa! Wow, this has been really, really, really great. Do you have any other project you would just like to mention, or <laughs> we just you got so much well, going on? Or should, maybe my, we should just. With, with my wrap wife, it up. the performance artist Nicole Perafid, we are doing. Uh, a fair amount of collaborative work. And that's been an old um, project that we have. We worked together, you know, early on, she began making uh, covers for my books or illustrations. So she as a visual artist and as a singer and performer, and me as a kind of uh, just poet, you know, on just print man. But, you know, we began working more and more together and thinking of, um, you know, how our collaborations could become um, uh, very much, you know, multiple dimensional. Um, mm. So we, we call them domo poetics, from domo, domus, the home, the hearth, you know, whole notion of hearth. I had a book way back called Hearth Work uh, in the mm. 70s already. So that notion interests me, you know, that the dailiness is part of the transformation that is needed to make the poetry and those things, you know, act on each other. And so with Nicole, we have explored uh, some of the prehistoric caves in France and around, and material from that comes in. Uh, Nicole has explored a range of um, thinking and actions in terms of how she paints, uh, away from a purely eye visual painting, she often paints with her feet up tall on, on a performance. And go on her website, uh, nicoleparafeet.com, and you can, you, you can see that. And then we, 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 we create actions uh, together uh, where 
right now we're doing something that's called resist, persist, assist. You know, the cyst comes from mm -hmm. stands, from standing, from holding, you know. Um, and obviously this was, we had to resist for four years now, uh, the yeah. disaster, you know, and we had to persist, not give up. And we had to assist each other to be able to hold through this. So that is kind of the core of the uh, actions that we're supposed to be doing in Europe, in Luxembourg at a gallery in uh, February, where, you know, we would do live actions. So this time they may not be live given COVID. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, those are the big axes of what we, I'm right now, I'm not doing any more translation. I'm done. I'm catching up with a lot of prose writing. Uh, I have another book uh, of, of kind of autobiographical uh, tales, uh, you know, besides the poetry and uh, the collaborations with Nicole. So. Great. No okay. retirement for... Uh... No. Poets don't retire. What? Artists what? don't retire. Well, this has been great. Okay, folks, I just want to tell you that you've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm your host, Charlie Rossiter. Our guest is Pierre Joris, poet, translator, anthologist, who you are going to want to know more about. We mentioned some interesting things along the way. If you didn't get to write them down, go back and listen again for those references because there's some really great stuff to follow up. Thanks a lot, Pierre. This has been great. Thank you, Charlie. Take good care. All right. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other poetry spoken here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.